Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Street Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Deck them halls and ring them bells, because it's Christmas time, and this is our Christmas episode. Happy Christmas. Happy holidays. You know that's what the British say? They don't say Merry Christmas, they say Happy Christmas? I've seen Harry Potter, I know. Happy Christmas, Harry. I like Happy Christmas. I do also like Happy Christmas. What's more Christmassy than Sherlock Holmes? I can think of a lot of things more Christmassy than Sherlock Holmes, actually. List them now. A Christmas Carol? Isn't a Christmas Carol just Sherlock Holmes, but inside out and backwards? No. Scrooge, is he not a tall, thin man who who is beset by mysteries? Okay, you have me there. Is Tiny Tim not also there? Is Bob Cratchit not his Watson? No. Oh. Is Bob Marley not his Watson? Bob oh. Marley? <laughs> wait, wait. Don't worry about a thing. Wait, do you think that Bob Marley is Watson and then No. And then and then he's died and that has embittered Sherlock Holmes and that's why he's such a sad miser now? Why are you bringing up Bob Marley? Sorry, Jacob Marley. <laughs> Jacob Marley. The other problem about Sherlock Holmes and Scrooge is that they do take place at the same time. They're both in the Victorian era. They're probably neighbors. They're probably neighbors. Yeah, that's maybe as close as they're going to get. So as you've no doubt guessed, this episode is about the Sherlock Holmes story, The Blue Carbuncle. I don't think people guessed that. <laughs> I thought we made it pretty clear with the intro. <laughs> so, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle was first published in the Strand magazine in January of 1892. So this was a post-Christmas story. Well, the entire story actually does take place after Christmas, so that makes sense. And then in the U.S. it was in the Strand in February of 1892. And that's about it for Fast Facts. Thank you for listening. This is the closest we have to our Sherlock Holmes canonical Christmas story. Uh Uh-huh. There have been some other attempts to combine the two ideas because Victorian Christmas time is taken over by Christmas Carol. Is well it's taken over by Christmas Carol, but also like feels so romantic and feels like such a Christmassy time to us. And these stories feel sort of romantic and, and charming to us. I think there's people other people have tried to combine these two ideas. There's whole like story collections that combine Christmas and Sherlock Holmes. Mm. There are a number of adaptations, but it's by no means the most adapted Sherlock Holmes story. So we thought as a Christmas treat to ourselves really we would read the story and then take a look back at the Granada TV show version of it because we enjoyed Jeremy Brett. Jeremy Brett's portrayal of Holmes so much. And we thought it'd be fun. And that's really what Christmas is about. It's about us. It's Yeah, it's about being self-indulgent. Yeah, so... <laughs> okay, you said this was post-Christmas? Uh, yeah, I'll read you the first line of the story. It says, I had called upon my friend Sherlock Holmes upon the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. Mm. So it's the story is on, starts on the 27th. <laughs> well, there are 12 days of Christmas. I suppose. I always forget about how that works, but it starts from Christmas, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's the festive season. It's the third day of Christmas, so there are three French hens on this day. Well, there you go. And it's how appropriate for this story. Oh, yeah! But there's a lot of fowl in the 12 days of Christmas anyway. That's true. It's a very bird-focused yeah. song. So Watson arrives at Baker Street on the 27th to find Sherlock Holmes in a purple dressing gown, reading the newspaper, and with this old battered hat beside him. 
Right. Watson's like, what's with the hat? And Sherlock's like, there's, it's not a crime. It's just one of those goofy things that sometimes happens to people when there's a lot of people in the same place. You know, weird things happen sometimes. This hat is the result of one of those things. An inspector friend of ours, Peterson, the commissioner, ran into a scuffle on the street where this man was involved in some sort of street fight. And he broke a window by accident. And when he saw Peterson approaching him, he dropped both his hat and the goose he was carrying, presumably home to his wife for Christmas. Mm. And I've been studying the hat, you know, just as a curiosity. But the question is, does anyone still wear a hat? So Peterson, the commissioner, has taken the goose back to his family and left Sherlock with the hat. There's something that's, like, never quite remarked upon that is sort of, like, quietly sad about this. The fact that, like, Sherlock Holmes clearly spent Christmas alone and that Watson is calling on him two days later. Yeah, where was Watson? Where was Watson for with his wife, maybe? I think he might not be married yet. Or he could be. I don't know. I'm always confused by that timeline. But clearly, you know... This police constable brought Sherlock this curiosity on, what, Christmas Eve? And Sherlock was like, well, you take the goose and have a nice Christmas, you know. And just, like, was alone for Christmas. Aww. Seemingly. So he he does a very classic thing. He gives Watson the hat and is like, what can you... Deduce. You, you know my methods. What can you do deduce about this hat? And Watson is kind of like, this is just a hat. I, I can't help but love... <laughs> this like Sherlock Holmes parlor game that he always plays because he's like, I deduced that he is a very clever man and that his wife doesn't love him anymore. And that, <laughs> and that he drinks now, but he didn't used to. And, <laughs> and Watson's like, Sherlock, right. Come on. Don't be mean. And then like the reveal, like the magician, he, he goes, well, here's how I know all those things. And he explains all of his deductions. My absolute favorite one is uh, about how the man is a, is uh, an intellectual of some kind. And this is just probably a Victorian understanding of the science of the time. Here's what it says. For answer, Holmes clapped the hat upon his head. It came right over the forehead and settled upon the bridge of his nose. It is a question of cubic capacity, said he. A man with so large a brain must have something in it. So wait, if it fell on his nose, that means Sherlock isn't that smart. I know. (laughs) I love the implication that that this man is smarter than Sherlock Holmes because of the size of his head. And this isn't really borne out by the story because the the man's basically barely in the story. Yeah. When they do track him down, which they do. But, like, does Moriarty have a bigger head than Sherlock? Why does Sherlock have a small head comparative to this man who is a drunkard whose wife doesn't love him? You know. <laughs> Once again, so many questions, Arthur. Arthur, we'd like to talk to you. And then the reason that Sherlock says that the man's wife no longer loves him is that the hat has not been brushed for weeks. Right? And everybody knows. Only wives brush hats. Right. Men don't brush their own hats. Right. And if they stop loving you, they stop brushing your hat. (laughs) If you know what I mean. Do you think Watson brushes Sherlock's hat? And vice versa? Because they're lovers? Sherlock says, When I see you, my dear Watson, with a week's accumulation of dust upon your hat, and when your wife allows you to go out in such a state, I shall fear that you have also been unfortunate enough to lose your wife's affection. So I guess he is married. I guess. I guess. I also love that Sherlock has, like, constructed a situation where Watson's wife no longer loves him. <laughs> he's, uh-huh. like, he's like, I've imagined that your wife no longer loves you. Just just a I'm thought. Just, just a thought. What would happen? Just, just a thought that's been on my mind. Wouldn't it be silly? <laughs> and then Watson is kind of rude about the whole exercise. He says, well, it is very ingenious, but since, as you said just now, there has been no crime committed and no harm done save the loss of a goose, all this seems to be rather a waste of energy. <laughs> 
Which is so rude. Well, yeah. <laughs> to his good to his boyfriend. To his good friend or whatever they are. They're lovers. Well, lovers who didn't see each other over Christmas. So. It happens, though. Yeah. I just think, like, Watson knows that Sherlock enjoys this little intellectual game. I love that it's like, how silly. Why are you wasting your time? <laughs> Why are you wasting your time on this and not on me? Right. So at this point, Peterson, the commissioner, shows up and declares that something extraordinary has happened, which is that in what they describe as the crop of the goose, they found a blue jewel. And Sherlock immediately recognizes that it is not just any jewel, but is in fact the blue carbuncle, which has been stolen from a countess at a hotel ah. a couple days prior. So the rest of the story is about how did the stone come to be in the goose and how did all of those things come to be right. in the possession of Mr. Henry Baker, the man who they haven't found yet. Yeah. Which Sherlock solves by finding him. So he puts an ad in the paper and says, if you lost a goose and a hat at the, around this address, around this date, come to Baker Street and we shall return it. Also, Sherlock is like, and for the meanwhile, I'll hold on to the stone, which I think is very funny. Like, a precious jewel has been lost and there's a police officer there and Sherlock's like, and I'll keep it. For, yeah. Just for now. And the story never describes him returning the stone, which I think we were supposed to assume he does, but... Nah, it, it doesn't happen during the story. Nah, he won't. He he kept it for himself. At one point, he's like, "I'll let the countess know," but then does he? You know, he's gonna give it to Watson on a ring. The way they describe it, it's pretty big. I don't know if it would fit on a ring. Well, it cut down. So he so he puts this ad in the paper for Henry Baker, the man who who's there was a note attached to the goose, right, saying who it was <clears> for. So they put a this thing in the paper, and they say for Henry Baker to come by around six thirty. In the evening. And Watson's like, well, there's nothing to do until then, so I'll con- continue my professional rounds, which is interesting that he considers Sherlock part of his professional rounds, and I'll come back at 6.30 because I'm curious about how this whole thing shakes out. And Sherlock says, very glad to see you. I dine at 7. There is a woodcock, I believe, which is the bird they're going to eat. Right. And, like, there's a part of me that's like, oh, this is like Sherlock's machination to just get John to have dinner with him. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he, he specifically made the appointment for Henry Baker to be 6.30. And then he's like, oh, I just happened to be having dinner at 7. So Should maybe I, maybe join me for saying? dinner. Which I think is kind of cute. That, that Sherlock, is really cute. Sherlock is like, I want to solve this case, but also dinner? Dinner? You want to eat together? And then maybe... Eat together? Yeah. So uh, Watson returns at 6.30. Henry Baker is there as well. And Sherlock is like, well... Unfortunately, I must tell you that we have eaten the bird because it was going to go bad. But we bought you another one over there on the mantle. But we've saved some little parts of the bird. You know, the the beak, the talons, the crop. Uh, if any of that is of interest. And the man's like, no, why should I need any of that? I just, you know, I just want the bird. I just want the bird. I just want to eat. I just want to eat. And I want my hat back. Because he's come in a bonnet. <laughs> which is like, it's not really suiting of my vanity. So Sherlock's like, all right, this guy's not the guy, clearly. But he's like, where did you buy the bird? And this begins what is quite literally a wild, wild goose, goose chase. chase. Very nice. Well done, Arthur. Although, I guess, prototypically in a wild goose chase, you don't end up anywhere. But they do solve this. Do you think this makes Arthur Conan Doyle a silly goose? Why? Why would it? Because goose chase is... Silly goose and goose and geese and meese and meeses and... No cheeses for us meeses. <laughs> no cheeses for us meeses? Christmas Carol? 
It all connects. It all connects. So what were you thinking of, of the story so far at this point? Oh, I think by this point I was like, oh, this is going to be a silly one. Yeah. Yeah. This is not, we're not looking for a murderer. Right. We're not, look, like, this is just going to be... No one's life is at stake. Yeah. This is just a silly little one. Although someone's life is at stake. But what's funny is that, like, arguably, like, structurally, who the client is, is someone we never meet. Because there's a man who has been falsely arrested for stealing the jewel who could go to jail yeah, or hang for it. I'm not sure which. One or the other. One or the other. Maybe both. And we never meet him in the story, but Sherlock is like, well, if that guy's innocent, then we have to... Prove it. We have to prove that he's innocent. Yeah, no one's asked Sherlock to do this. He's just doing this for fun. He's just intrigued. He's just a silly little guy. He's a silly little guy. A silly goose, you might say. You might say. So... Henry Baker's like, I got the goose from this uh, club that I frequent. We had a little... A goose day. We had, Yeah, we had a goose club where instead of having to have all the money for a goose at once, we paid a little bit over the course of the year for a goose. And all of us got to bring a goose home to our family for the holiday. And good as his word, the guy who ran the club gave us all a goose. So Sherlock and Watson go down to the club, which is described as a private bar. That Holmes just walks into and orders a beer, which, you know, fine. That's not right. Yeah. So, and he questions the barman. The barman's like, oh, yeah, we we did. We don't raise the geese here. We got them from this farm, from this distributor, actually. And Sherlock goes to the distributor, and he's like, where do you get your goose from? And the distributor's like kind of a little dick. The, yeah, the distributor's like, why does everyone keep coming here and asking me about the, the damn geese? <laughs> it's my business. I'm not going to tell you... Or anybody else who keeps coming here and asking about this goose. So other people are clearly interested in this. And Sherlock plays him like a fiddle. Yes. Which is good, because he's good at fiddling. So he bets the man some money that the goose is country bred. Right. And the guy's like, all right, I'll take your bet. That goose is town bred. Which is weird, because geese aren't made of bread. They eat bread. That's an oversight on Arthur Conan Doyle's part. And he quite clearly reads them the address of the farm where the goose is from, which is in town. So he reads it, but they don't get to go to the farm? They don't get to go to the farm because Sherlock's like, well, I guess uh, we could go We could go tonight or we could just go tomorrow and figure out what's going on there. But as they're walking away from the distributor... A little guy. A little guy shows up. To, just kind of like a rat. As a rat, like, to, yeah. to start a fight... With the distributor guy, the distributor guy's like, "Stop asking me about the goose. I'm not going to tell you where the goose is from." You know, <laughs> like throws him out. So Sherlock is like, "Well, this will save us some time, probably." <laughs> he approaches the man. He's like, "Hi, my name's Sherlock Holmes, and I think I can help you with your problem." And he like kind of traces the path. He's like, "I think that you're looking for a specific goose that was sold by this distributor to this club and then purchased by Henry Baker and lost at this address and so on." And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you're exactly the person I'm looking for to help me solve this problem. <laughs> and he's like, okay, what's your name? And the guy's like, my name is John Robinson. And Sherlock says, no, no, the real name. It is always awkward doing business with an alias. <laughs> and the guy's like, my real name is James Ryder. And Sherlock says, precisely so, head attendant at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. Ryder? I don't even know her. Nice. Which is also funny because, like, Sherlock's been reading newspaper articles about this jewelry theft but the fact that he recognizes the name of the porter is like yeah he knows you'd think with all that knowledge his head would be a little bit bigger so they ride to baker street 
It, which takes half an hour and nobody talks for the entire cab ride. <laughs> which I think is a funny detail. I feel like there's this thing sometimes in movies where people are having a conversation, but it's cut across like multiple locations. <laughs> but it always gives the impression that like they just stop talking, walk to the next place, and then keep talking. But that, right. that just literally happens here. Like they're like, well, let's get this solved. And then they get in a carriage and sit quietly for half an hour. <laughs> and then they get it to Baker Street. And then Sherlock is like, so. That goose of yours laid an egg, <laughs> and the egg was a jewel. And I'm not speaking metaphorically, here's the, here's the jewel. And the guy's like, ah, shit, you got me. Right. And Sherlock sort of guesses how the whole case unfolded, which is that this man, James Ryder, found out about the jewel, found a way to, like, stage the break-in so that it looked like it was this other guy, got away with it. And then Ryder's like, please have mercy, like, throws himself at Sherlock's feet, Please don't bring this into court. Think of my parents. Right. And Holmes is like, you didn't think very much of sending another man to, to the courts. Like, how, how dare you? And Ryder's like, well, then I'll leave the country and the charge against the innocent man will break down. She looks like, that's all very good and well and just as whatever, whatever. But I want to know how this happened. Like, I'm just kind of curious. Right. And he explains the story, which is that he staged the break-in, and then he was very nervous that he had this jewel on him, and he went to visit his sister, who works at a goose farm, her goose farm, and he was like, I have an associate who could help me pawn off the jewel, but I don't know how to get it there. I was worried about being discovered with it in my pocket. So he fed it to a goose, and then he was like, hey, sister, you promised me a goose. Can I take it with me today? And she's like, yeah, of course. But she, he loses the goose. He grabs the wrong goose, brings it to his compatriot. Because there's they, two geese that look the same. Look the same. He brings it to his compatriot. They cut open the goose. And then he's like, oh, no, I've lost my jewel, right? And then we sort of know the rest. He tried, right. to, tried to track down the jewel to Henry Baker, but Henry Baker had gotten the had just had, had the luck of getting the one goose that could lay the blue jewel egg. And that's the tale of the blue carbuncle. And Sherlock's like, okay, get out. Like, right? Like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to arrest you. And the reason he gives is kind of like, well, it's Christmas. <laughs> this is what he says. I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. If Horner were in danger, that's the innocent man who's been arrested, it would be another thing, but this fellow will not appear against him and the case must collapse. I suppose that I am commuting a felony, but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. This fellow will not go wrong again. He is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now and you make a, him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is the season of forgiveness. Chance has put in our way a most singular and whimsical problem, and its solution is its own reward. If you will have the goodness to touch the bell, Doctor, we will begin another investigation in which also a bird will be the chief feature. <laughs> which is to say their dinner. So that's the end. That's the end of the story. That's the blue carbuncle. It's a cute little story. It's a cute little story. Much more in the red-headed league vein, where it's just like, something goofy has happened, and it's unclear if this is going to be a crime, but there is something afoot, actually. Right. But at the end, like... Doesn't matter. Doesn't really matter. Justice is kind of served. It's kind of the perfect marriage between Redhead League and Devil's Foot. Mm. How so? Where it's like a silly little issue and then the guy gets to run away mm -hmm. scot-free. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Which is even funnier why then we're going to do Granada. Which is, yeah, the two episodes we did of Granada before. Right. <laughs> yeah. I like these silly, goofy stories. Yeah, I like a Sherlock when there is no big villain or like mm -hmm. the stakes are so low beneath the ground yeah i also like that it's like i'm not a cop like <laughs> right like i don't have to imprison you like it's christmas it's christmas why don't why, 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 go home <laughs> or don't go home leave the country but get out of here, get it's out of christmas. here. yeah anyway dinner <laughs> yeah i have more important things to do i'm gonna have dinner with my boyfriend 
Bye. Get out. How do you think Granada will deal with the story? I already know they're going to add a bunch of shit. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, this is not a very long story. So what are they going to do to make it, whatever, 53 minutes or whatever those stories always are? I have a feeling they're going to make it even more Christmassy and make it take place Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Oh, that could be fun. It's yeah. like literally Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I think that the big thing they did that different from the candidate that they never introduced the idea of Watson having a wife. So right. maybe they'll f- fix this, like, Watson and Sherlock Holmes didn't get to have Christmas together thing. Maybe they'll get to have Christmas together. Maybe they'll have Christmas together. They'll go see the Nutcracker. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. And I'm sure we'll spend a lot more time at each of the locations, like the, the club and the distributor and seeing right. the flashback of the Goose Farm. I can already imagine how comedic the wager will be. Yeah. Well, so so this is a bit of a, a format switch up for us. What we're going to do is we're going to take a short break. We're going to go watch the episode, and then we'll come back and talk about it in the second half of, yeah. of today's episode. So let's do that now. We're back. We're back. And that was a blue carbuncle. That carbuncle was blue. <laughs> dabba dee, dabba die. Dabba dee, dabba die. So we were right that the story's pretty short. They had to pad a little. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think it was too much. How would you rank this in relation to the other two Granada episodes we've seen? I don't know. It's kind of in the middle for me. Okay. I think because compared to the other two, not much happens. Yeah. Like, it's a very all-in-one-day mystery, Mm -hmm. whereas the other ones took place, like, over time. Yeah. I think it's a weird one to adapt, honestly, for that reason. But I'm so glad they did. I love these stupid little stories where where nothing of any particular consequence really happens. I do, too. But for some reason, watching this adaptation Mm -hmm. of it, it's very much this could have been in an email. But I like that about it. You know, it gives us a chance to, like, sit with it and, to, like, build up the more characters and the emotions. And in this version, we get a lot of, like, domestic boyfriend moments between Sherlock and Watson that don't really exist in the text. Mm-hmm. Like, that's an adaptational change they've made. It's sort of, like, sweet and small. And I don't think every case has to be, you know, guns at Big Ben. Though, I will say, like, I enjoyed in the other episodes seeing, like pre-Sherlock and Watson or, like, all, all like, the other things. Like, in Devil's Foot, seeing, like, the the robbery and stealing of the Devil's Foot or, or seeing, like, the story of Red-Headed League unfold in front of us. I thought that was cool. This yeah. one, I didn't need to see the Countess freaking out that the blue carbuncle is missing. Yeah. Like, I don't care. 
the only thing that we note of her in the book is like she lost her diamond and she's gonna pay a thousand dollars for whoever can find it probably pounds yeah one thing i will say in defense of this change although i think i think i agree mostly but in defense of this change i will say that the way the story is written and i think this happens in most arthur conan doyle sherlock holmes stories there are no women (laughs) there are women off page like characters have wives to go home to and the countess is in a hotel somewhere and and so on wives and sisters but they never show up like Sherlock and Watson never have to talk to any women <laughs> at right. all save Mrs. Hudson maybe who also doesn't get any lines in the story and in this adaptation we get four women with speaking lines which like the bar is so low they don't meet each other this is not a Bechtel pass or anything like that but I appreciate that they took a story that is so, you know typically masculine of the canon and put the women back in to mm. it that having been said, we get like two prologues before you meet Sherlock and Watson. We see this whole thing where we see the like the jewel and we see like it's sorted past. There's this monologue we didn't talk about from the first half where Sherlock talks about how like jewels like this are magnets for crime and people desire them and they do terrible evil things because of them. So we see like the history of this specific jewel from it's like mining and various murders that it's inspired. And then we move to like the hotel where the countess is staying and she's like arriving and we see like the hustle and bustle on the day of the crime on the 22nd of December leading up to the discovery of the theft. So we meet some of our main characters there and only then do we cut to, to Sherlock and Watson. So it's like, I, you know, it's, good to meet all those characters but a lot of them aren't important and like all of them get like either a flashback or another scene later in this i think what i liked about in the expansion of the story is showing james horner yeah i liked that we get to see the accused man we see his like wife and family at the end which is lovely and like he, he is the stakes of the story like to, to the degree that the story has stakes at all it's this guy who we don't ever meet in the book and i like that he's so present and i feel like if we're going to expand it more if you're going to add additional scenes, mm-hmm. maybe add a scene where Sherlock talks to the wife. That's true. Yeah. Or talks to James Horner himself. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to give them attention, give them attention instead of giving attention to this countess or yeah. these two servants. Especially because there's no payoff to the countess's introduction. Because at the beginning, I was like, oh, we're, in- we're meeting the countess. So presumably we'll like have a moment at the end where she like gets the jewel back. And she like, I don't know, thanks Sherlock or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen. Like halfway through the story, she has her last scene. Or she's like, I will put forward a reward. Or this mean detective, like bring him forth. Make him like a villain of the episode. I don't know. Mean detective? That mean detective who was like roughing up Horner in the cell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Who's that guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, who's that guy? And I thought we would get something at the end because Sherlock and Watson, having solved the crime and dispensed their version of justice, decide to sit down to dinner. But before they do, Watson's like, do you think anyone is at their desk at the police office right now? And they like go down to free Horner, which I have a lot of questions about because like they just <laughs> they just show up and he's like, this man is innocent. That's how I assume he would say right. it. In his Jeremy Brett way. In his Jeremy Brett way. And then they're like, well, if you say so. It's like, <laughs> like what are they going to do? How are they going to prove it? Well, they, well, he has the blue carbuncle. But he, he very distinctly, this is the uh, thing that the story also makes clear that is not, I think, clear in the book, is that he decides to keep the blue carbuncle, which is crazy. Yeah. So he like he just locks it in a drawer <laughs> next to a picture of who I assume is Irene Adler. And drugs. And his drug paraphernalia. Yeah, I, I, I just wish, like, if you were going to expand it, and maybe this is a problem because this was 
based off of what we saw in early, like, season one, this was, like, series one, episode seven mm. of the show. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were afraid to, like, do some of the expansion and changes that they did in Devil's Foot or even Redheaded League. Like, they weren't prepared to do that yet. Well, and part of that probably is Jeremy Brett. I think one of the things we talked about earlier is that he was real stickler for them sticking to the books. But I would also think if Jeremy Brett was a stickler, mm-hmm. that opening scene wouldn't have happened. Like, I can imagine Jeremy Brett watching this being like, why is this here? <laughs> oh, do you think he talks like that in real life? Yes. <laughs> why are we doing this? No, but it's pretty canonical. Like, that basically does happen. We just don't see it in the book. I, th- yeah. I think, like, like, both of those editions are basically true. But I feel like there's a reason we don't see it in the book, and I feel like this episode explains why. Well, I think part of the reason we don't see it is that the stories are told from Watson's perspective. That's fair. And they're never officially hired, so nobody comes and explains the scene at the Countess's place because they got brought in. It does also kind of spoil the surprise when there's a jewel in the goose's mouth. Like, it comes out of nowhere in the book. Yeah. But at the very beginning, we're like, this is a story about a jewel. The blue carbuncle. Here's a countess. She's missing a jewel. Sherlock Holmes has been given a goose. And you're like, huh, how's that going to connect? What, what's, what's happening here? Uh, I also want to talk about the fact, like we guessed, they did make it a little a little Christmasier. A little bit more, yeah. So there's just like Christmas decorations around, like the hotel is decorated for Christmas. And there's some like Christmas decorations around Holmes Watson flat. But also whenever they're out of doors, someone is playing Christmas music. Right. <laughs> There's always Christmas music playing if they're outdoors. Or or the last thing like somebody would say to them like before they leave a room or before they leave like two two one Baker Street. Yeah. They're like Merry Christmas. Have a Merry Christmas and happy holidays. And Hums is like, Bah humbug. Because he's Scrooge. Whoa. Also they condense the action. So it is all the day after the crime on the twenty third. Right. Holmes doesn't want to work on Christmas. <laughs> right. I'm certain it's the twenty third which doesn't make any sense because it means that the crime must have happened pretty early on the 22nd. Yeah. For all the stuff with, like, the goose getting fed the jewel and then going and getting killed, for the going through the various chain of distributors. All that had to have happened in the afternoon and evening of the 22nd. Yeah. Which is a little strange because really a little bit, but it does leave in, it, us in this nice place where at the very end, they've, like, spent all day solving this case and they finally sit down to late dinner now. Uh, at midnight and the the like bell starts chiming and Sherlock's like well it's Christmas I let him go because it's Christmas <laughs> Be- which is just like him making an excuse which I think is interesting right that it's just literally because the midnight chimes and he realizes that it is is now Christmas Eve but wait that brings up a thing at the end of like does Horner get released on Christmas Eve because it's daytime clearly yeah I guess he gets released on Christmas Eve huh. goes home to his family that's good that's good but they're like we're gonna keep him for like one more night just to be safe. No, no, no. Because it's midnight. It's just become Christmas Eve when they go to release him. It's just uh-huh. become the 24th. So they just release him the morning of the 24th. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Oh, like, I guess you're saying they don't release him at midnight. Yeah, they don't release him at night. Yeah. It's possible that his kids were sleeping. Because we see him with his kids. Maybe he went home. The at, kids didn't have to be there. At two in the morning. And then the kids woke up and they got to, like, hang out with him for Christmas Eve. Yeah. We're putting way too much thought into this. <laughs> the point is they filmed the scene with the kids <laughs> to show that he's reunited with his family. Another detail about this I like is that when we first arrive at Baker Street at the beginning of the story, we see an exterior, we see Watson leave and go to like a gift store on the corner, and then the commissionaire arriving with the goose, and then Mrs. Hudson has to like go wake up Sherlock. It's like midday, (laughs) and he's like still in bed. She, She like wakes him up and he like immediately reaches for a cigarette and starts smoking, which is like he's such a mess. 
That's his morning coffee. That's his morning coffee. And I love that, like, this show isn't afraid of showing Sherlock as, like, someone who's kind of a mess sometimes. Yeah. It humanizes him. It does humanize him. Holmes and Watson definitely live together in this version. Yes. Watson goes out and gets Christmas presents. Yes. Unclear if he's picking up the mail or if he went and bought Christmas presents for Holmes. Either way, it's cute. It's very cute. We also have David Burke again. So this is nice. Yeah. Young Watson. I like David Burke. And then also when he comes back in, he's like reading the paper to Holmes. There's a a friendliness there. Just a nice little moment of like, Mm -hmm. oh, there's an interesting story in the paper. I'm going to read it to you. I mean, obviously it's about the blue carbuncle and it's like going to be important later. He's like, babe, listen to this. The other thing that I think is fun about this, because it's been a while, I forgot about Jeremy Brett and his various Jeremy (laughs) Brettisms, is like every time he has to interact with somebody, I'm like... This was this was just so weird from the other person's perspective because he's he's just like not only the like crazy changes in volume, but also just the like absolutely no effort spent to like be friendly and human. Just like the complete like. So, I hear you have good goose here. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like always like sitting back with making a severe face with his hands folded, <laughs> like staring at people. We'll take a beer. I I love that when he goes to the um the the club where Henry got the goose. Mm-hmm. He's like, we'll have a beer. I hear your goose is good. And tell me where you buy them. And the guy's like, oh, that's where I buy them. He's like, that's very kind. Here, have a beer with us. And he gives him a coin to the beer. And the guy turns around to <laughs> to pour himself a beer. And then they just book it out of there. Holmes books it. And Watson's like, oh, we're not drinking the beer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then makes a comment about it being a cold night. Like, sort of like, oh, I think a beer would have, like, warmed me up a little. But Holmes is obsessed. Yeah, I, I forgot how much Jeremy Brett raises his voice as Holmes. He does it a lot in this and episode. Just, yeah, I, like, I forgot that he has a hurt, certain way of speaking as Holmes. Yeah. Where he's like, so! <laughs> and when he's, like, interviewing people, as compared to when he's talking to Watson, where he's just like, say Watson. <laughs> and then when he's, like, interrogating people or talking to people, he's like, it's unfortunately, we ate your goose. <laughs> but don't worry. Yeah. We got another one. Yeah, I think that everyone who meets him must be sort of like, what a weird, off-putting... <laughs> kind of guy like why is he like that i think another thing that felt christmasy about this special to me is that it like very distinctly underlines that there are poor people in london which feels very like very christmas carol to be like think of the suffering people but then unlike christmas carol nothing ever happens we're just like well he gave that poor drunkard his hat back so i guess (laughs) i guess he'll be fine now And and a christmas goose I like how you're like, you know what makes Christmas? Poor people. No, honestly, that does feel fundamental about Christmas to me. Mm. About Christmas movies, to be like, this is a time when we help other people. Mm. And Sherlock Holmes is like, this is a time where there are poor people. That's it. That's all we have to say about that. There is a moment that I really loved when Sherlock and Watson are in the market and they're talking to the goose provider. Yes. And Sherlock is like, well, you know, we made a wager that you have the best geese in mm-hmm. all of this area. and It's not the best geese. It's about where, the, where they're bred. Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't believe that these are towners. I believe they're country geese. Mm-hmm. And you just have a moment of Watson, like, looking at him like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. I'm yeah. so proud of you. It's a real proud boyfriend moment. I mean, the thing is, like, without ever saying it, I still think that Granada might be the gayest... Sherlock and Watson pair we've seen. Mm-hmm. Because it's so, like, there's so many, like, little domestic details. Like, there's this one moment where, like, they're 
interviewing, I think, Henry, who lost yes. the hat and the goose, where Sherlock sits down and then Watson sits on the chair behind him and then, like, kind of loops his hand around Sherlock's chair. Mm. And it's like, what a, like, a small... That's like, pretty sensual. ...intimate thing that they're doing. Yeah. We do, though, see Sherlock's bed because he wakes up at the, mid- the middle of the day and it is, like, a twin-sized bed. <laughs> There's no room. I mean, like the Titanic... There's room for two. That's true. Life finds a way. Life finds a way. That's what they say in Titanic, I'm pretty sure. Right. <laughs> I do think they add a little too much. I think that there's like like four different flashbacks. There's like so many extra scenes. We don't need to see the Countess a second time. I'd like seeing Horner a couple times, but we see him like maybe one too many times. They also add like a chase, <laughs> a very brief chase in yeah. the marketplace when they find uh, Ryder. Because in the book, they just go up to him afterwards. Yeah, exactly. But there's this like... Him getting away in the hustle and bustle. I gotta say, this marketplace scene is pretty big. This is one of those episodes where they had the money. Well, it's Christmas episode, and Christmas, you know. Yeah. They get they get watched a lot more than other episodes, so you gotta put the money into it. That's true. I wonder if this was aired as a Christmas episode. Oh, uh, maybe. Or if it's just set at Christmas. It might be the latter. Oh, one more thing. Just because this came up when we were watching the episode, we were like, I don't think this is true. When Ryder is like, I'm going to leave town, as somebody sounds like, uh, he's like, I'm going to leave town, and the charge will break down, and they won't arrest him, the guy. Porter won't go to jail. Right. And we were both sort of like, is that true? Because it seems like everything in Victorian London works on speculative evidence anyway. There's enough speculative evidence to put him at the scene of the crime. And he had, you know, motive means opportunity, right? And Well, he has a criminal pass. So, like, yeah, repeat offender... Right. Gonna get worse. And there might be, like, pressure from the Countess to have it taken care of. Right. Right? And, like, have some sense of, like, justice has been served. I I think it's weird that Sherlock keeps it. I also, at one point early in the story, he promises Peterson, who is the person who, like, found the jewel because he had the goose. That the money will go to him. That he'll get the reward money, but he won't get the reward money if Sherlock keeps the stone. I just don't get why Sherlock keeps the stone. I feel like if we were going to get an epilogue with the Countess, it would be something like that. We should have at least gotten that. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't understand his thinking. Yeah. Why does he keep it? Yeah. And also, like, Peterson lets him keep it. Peterson's like, oh, I'll grab that. And he's like, no, I'll keep it. And it's like, why would the police person let him do that? <laughs> I mean, why do you go to Sherlock in the first place? He, he's pretty explicit about why he went to Sherlock in the first place. And this is one of those examples of Granada, like, adding things the text that are not ever explained in the books like in the episode he's like this curious thing happened to me and it's not a crime but i thought it might interest you and then it turns into a crime and then it turns into a crime right but he doesn't put any police detectives on it he just lets sherlock keep investigating yeah i'm i'm curious as to why personally the thing that i'm feeling about the ending of this story is in the book, the ending of letting the bad guy go, I was okay with. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it felt wrong. Uh-huh. And I can't put my finger on it. Maybe because we see Horner, or maybe because we have the prologue of the thing going missing, and we know it's going to be one of those two, or, like, that they're in cahoots with each other. But I can't pinpoint why one feels okay and the other doesn't to me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the only difference really is that we see him. I, I don't think much of his dialogue really changes. I guess we get more of his dialogue because we see his flashback to his interactions with his sister. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel 
bad for him when he's like pleading to Sherlock in this one. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe when Sherlock at the end is like, he's learned his lesson. He'll never commit a crime again. I believe it in the book. I don't believe it here. Hmm. Interesting. And maybe it's because the actor maybe acted a little too slimy for me or like, yeah. I don't know like wh- what was up with it, but like it felt wrong. Yeah. It's interesting because I think there are some choices here that come down to acting. Like it's very much like the end of Devil's Foot where like Jeremy Brett is doing a lot more with his acting to justify Sherlock's decision to to dole out his own form of justice than the text is doing on its own. Mm-hmm. And here, like he seems like kind of tired. He's like, just just leave. Like, just get out. But then when Watson presses him on it, he's like, I'm not the police. I'm not responsible for their mistakes. Like, he's, he seems really upset about that idea. Which is interesting because, I mean, like, what is he grappling with? I mean, it feels like what he's grappling with is the, like, burden of having the great responsibility that comes with great power. But even in the short story, when he has that line, it kind of felt like... Flippant? Yeah, more like, I'm not responsible for mm-hmm. what they do. And besides, it's Christmas. Right, whereas this, he's like, I'm not responsible! Like, really, like, feeling a certain type of way about it. And I'm like, buddy, do you need to talk? What happened? What What, what did they do to you? Tell us. I bet Moriarty has something to do with it. <laughs> it's always Moriarty, isn't it? Always Moriarty. I'm surprised, I'm surprised it didn't get flipped to him <laughs> in some capacity. They're like, James Ryder isn't clever enough to pull off a crime like this. Moriarty. Moriarty must have put him up to it. In fact, if you rearrange the letters in the name... You get Artie Morty. <laughs> so this is a mainline episode for us, which means we get to rate this. <gasps> that is true. So we have a rating system, a five-point scale, mm-hmm. the LGBTQ scale, which stands for loyalty to the source material. Grade of mystery. Thank you. Britishness, total enjoyment, and, and queer subtext. So out of five points, starting with loyalty to source material. So it is the source material. It is the source material. Is the source I, material. I, I, are we doing a joint rating for the book and the... No, I think we should just do this. Like, we're rating the Granada episode. Okay. So loyalty to source material, I think it's a easy four at least. Four, I, I'd give it a four and a half. I think... Yeah. The thing is that they've added things, but I think mostly they've added things that are that either like help to improve the storytelling and make things clearer or feel very in nature yeah. with what's already on the page. There's only one example that I think is a detriment, which is that Peterson, the commissioner, when he brings the hat and goose to Holmes, describes Henry as a drunkard, which means that Holmes's deduction that he's a drunkard is less meaningful. Mm. Right. But otherwise, I think the the changes are helping, not hurting. Yeah. I could go four and a half. Yeah, let's do four and a half. Grade of mystery. Three. I like this thing where where a thing that seems inconsequential turns into a bigger case. I think that's fun. But the mystery itself is just like this fetch quest. Like, yeah. Go to the man who sold the goose, ask him where the goose came from. He tells you to go to the man who sold the goose, go ask him where the goose came <laughs> from. He tells you after some ruse where the goose came from. Where the fuck did this <laughs> goose come from? Right, exactly. So, yeah, I could agree with a three. Yeah. It's not like we're getting new clues all the time that are that are interesting or right. change our understanding of the case. 
Britishness. Five. Five Britishness. It's fairly British. It's so British. Why five? It just feels British. It feels like a, a British Christmas thing. Okay. It just got that feeling. Total enjoyment? Easy four for me, at least. Yeah, I'd give it a three and a half to four. Agree at four? Yeah, let's agree at four. Great. And then queer subtext. Five, baby. Five, baby. They're gay. I love the Granada series. That gives us a total of 21.5, which puts it in second place, actually, behind the last Granada episode. Granada stays on top. Granada stays on top. Granada's that girl. She's that bitch. We love her. So we have two exciting episodes coming up for you. Next week, we're talking to the creators of the podcast series Fox and Stallion, Mm -hmm. which is a comic look at two characters who live across the street from Sherlock and Watson. Mm -hmm. And the week after that, we'll be finally talking about BBC Sherlock. The time has come. But in the meanwhile, have a happy Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next week. Have a happy holidays.